if I have any. And that's your quick hit. You are, you are. (laughs) Thank you, Brandon. And welcome to Plot Devices episode 23. We had jokes for the last two with the 21 and the alcohol and 22 of the Taylor Swift. There's no joke for 23. I, oh, no, wait. Yes, there is. Play 182. Nobody likes you when you're 23. And we don't like each other either. Just kidding. Self-love and all that stuff. I am your host for today, Brandon King, alongside my co-host and every aunt at a pharmacy ever. You can't see him on the video. Noah Guzman is here. Noah, how are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing fine, sweetie. How are you? Brandon, are you 23? Can we expose that to our listeners? I'm immortal. (laughs) I'm 23. Nobody likes me. Thank you for that Blink-182 reference. Uh, I'm feeling great, Brandon. I'm happy to be returning with another great week, uh, another great slate of movies that we'll be covering and some TV that we're going to talk about this this episode. Um, I'm also living that upgraded life, Brandon. I don't know about any of our listeners, but maybe some of you are Apple fans, but I recently dove my toe into the Galaxy world, and now I'm the proud owner of a Galaxy Z Fold, and oh my gosh, I can't wait to break this thing with the amount of times that I'm flipping it open and closed. (laughs) Um, But happy to be here, happy to discuss with you. I got my red sunglasses on because we are seeing red, we're turning red, we're doing all things red tonight you have no idea how long it took me to get noah's glasses joke at the beginning of this and we i literally got it right before we taped and i'm mad at myself that i didn't also i envy you for breaking apple's cold hard grasp but i hope i can one day let's get into our jam-packed show for today directorial debuts is coming back later we have a mini episode coming later with all things spoiler for the batman we're going to be talking about it here as well but a longer form discussion with uh sky merida and danielle Bokenkamp later on stay tuned for that But let's hop into our news. Uh, And there are some big pieces of news, starting with one that just broke 24 hours ago, uh, or maybe just that. Time is an illusion, whatever. Needless to say, Deadpool 3, we've been wondering about it for a while, whether it was actually going to happen, whether Disney would allow it to happen with their family-friendly image, and we'll get to that hypocrisy in just a little while. As confirmed by The Hollywood Reporter and then by the Merc with the Mouth himself, Ryan Reynolds, he is reuniting with Sean Levy, who did Free Guy, the Nightmare Museum movies, and most recently, The Adam Project, which we're going to be talking about later today. He is going to be directing Deadpool 3, alongside uh, former series writers Rhett Reese and Paul Wernick, who are returning to handle the script, from uh, Bob's Burgers writers The Molinow Sisters. I apologize if I'm mispronouncing them correctly. I've never heard them out loud. Reynolds posted about the news on Twitter, saying, quote, The third film in my Sean Levy trilogy will be a tad bit more stabby, with a really cool graphic of... Uh, his character of Guy from Free Guy, uh, Adam for the Adam Project, and then Deadpool in the background. It's actually a really cool graphic. Uh, Deadpool 3 is currently set to begin filming later this year. We'll see if any of the production delays have any effect on that. Noah, I take it you're a fan of the Deadpool movies. I, th- I would think that's uh, kind of in your wheelhouse. What do you think of Sean Levy, of all people, maybe the most tame of the three Deadpool directors we've gotten so far, reteam with Ryan Reynolds, who he clearly loves to work with so much? Hell yeah, Brandon. We just got... Um, I mean, we just spent this week watching another one of Sean Levy's uh, releases on Netflix in The Atom Project. We'll definitely be getting into some things later. Um, seeing Ryan Reynolds initially in Free Guy as his um, collaboration with Levy, I'm ready for it. I think that Free Guy was one of the most funs that I've had in a while with the, with the Ryan Reynolds film. I mean, talking Red Notice, like talking movies where I just expected just copy paste Ryan Reynolds. Um, I love him, but there is kind of like a certain dimension that has just been like spotlighted on him, which is like that sarcastic, uh, like you say, Merc with the mouth, which works so well for Deadpool. So to have that return and have that nature come back for Deadpool three, 
I hope it's bloodier. Now, like when you mentioned that comment, I went, oh yeah, Deadpool 2 wasn't as gruesome as it could have been, right? So let's get something that is totally tapping into just the ferociousness that comes from the immortal um, mercenary. I'm, I'm ready for that, honestly. Yeah, I'll admit I'm a little bit disappointed that Reese and Wernick are coming back. Uh, I love their takes on the first two movies, but I was really excited to see what the Moeno sisters could do. I've been starting to get into Bob's Burgers recently and to see what that sense of humor can translate to Deadpool as. I was very excited. And their treatment is apparently still going to say so. Hooray, but I wish they got more credit on that. The Sean Levy thing. Uh, I'm going to send you this later. There is a CBS Sunday morning piece uh, about Ryan Reynolds and Sean Levy doing uh, about doing the Adam Project. And they seem like the most kindred of spirits like they have uh, sean levy has this moment where he's like oh hugh jackman introduced me to ryan reynolds and he's literally said if you work with ryan you will not stop working with ryan and that is evident on free guy and it's very evident on, on adam project when we'll get to it uh i have been one to admit i never loved sean levy's movies but i've always respected him for understanding what audiences want how to make it good with heart and utilizing his lead actors in really effective ways i'm very excited to see what he can do with this deadpool 3 in the mcu I've always been open to it, even if it's PG-13. I know there's the whole thing of, like, Deadpool has to be rated R, and I'm like, no, he doesn't. You can do a lot of PG-13 these days. Uh, but I'm really excited to see what he can do with this. I'm really excited to see them kind of work this electric magic another time. I really hope they do more original projects like Free Guy, like Adam Project. I hope that keeps continuing. But this is exciting. Yeah, and I'm tired of seeing those promo picks for Multiverse of Madness with Deadpool yep. in them because it's not <laughs> happening, you guys. It's not happening. <laughs> Like, maybe we'll get a reference to, like, some a-hole in a red suit, but that's the most we'll get. That's, that's, and that's all we deserve, okay? Let's wait for Deadpool 3. They'll know how to impact the MCU. They, it, they teased it with the X-Men back in Deadpool 1, but now coming to the full MCU, we'll see what that looks like. Moving on to our next topic, which is a bit more expansive than just the one project, because this involves a lot of projects. We had a new interview with The Hollywood Reporter with uh, Steve Asbell, who is the current president of 20th Century Films. He spoke on a lot of the new projects that are coming up, a lot of the state of the company under the Disney acquisition, which just happened, I believe, earlier last year. Again, I don't remember in terms of pandemic times, but I know it was during the pandemic. Uh, for context, Asbel began his tenure as president after Emma Watts resigned in early 2020. Asbel became president in March 2020. And then something huge happened in the world. Uh, you know, things. Uh, so this has been a kind of tumultuous time for him as president. Now he's kind of coming out and saying what the pandemic did and things like that. He says Disney has been, quote, so embracing of us. Uh, they've apparently been willing to keep relationships with more adult directors like Yomo Toro, James Mangold, um, oh, God, Kathleen Kennedy, you know, things like that. Uh, but among other things, there was a lot of news on new projects. Uh, he confirmed a, I think, pretty tongue-in-cheek way of just being like, yeah, Avatar 2 is definitely coming out this year. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. But apparently it's still happening. It's still set for 2022. We'll get into that release date in just a little while with some DC news. Uh, we also know Wes Ball's take. Uh, Wes Ball, of course, did the Maze Runner movies. He's set to direct a new Planet of the Apes movies. That's supposed to apparently go into production later this year. We've heard nothing about it, but it is apparently happening. Uh, a third Kenneth Branagh Poirot movie uh, taking place in post-World War II Venice is still set to be happening. Death on the Nile apparently did good enough, so there's that. Uh, and Prey, which is uh, Dan Trachtenberg, who directed 10 Chlorophyll Lane, his take on the Predator in uh, 19th century Comanche America, that is supposed to come out later this year uh, for Hulu. And speaking of Hulu, he mentioned that the aim for now is to keep established properties, Planet of the Apes, Free Guy, he mentioned, which I thought was very interesting, to theaters, as well as at least 10 original films with their partnership with Hulu, including the upcoming Fresh with uh, Sebastian Sand, and Good Luck to You, Leo Grand with uh, Emma Thompson, among others. Noah, there was a lot to discuss in this article. We even said earlier whether or not we should do it just because it is so expansive and so kind of knee-deep in the film industry. 
What about this stood out to you, whether about 20th century's future going forward or just projects that uh, Steve Adler mentioned? I think what's most intriguing for me is, again, taking a step back and looking at these streaming platforms and, and realizing how they stand on their own. Because, you know, like most people, I don't just have one streaming platform that I subscribe to. I have multiple on my phone. So now realizing what each of them stand out, um, what each of them stand for individually, it's like, when I think 10 original films on Hulu, I don't think like, you know, A-list actors coming in for these Hulu films. Well, now that Fresh is just released and that, and that stars Sebastian Stan, I think we're going to start getting that, that level of value from those Hulu originals. And, I, and I'm, I'm excited for that. The only titles that I felt synonymous with Hulu in the past had been, um, The Handmaid's Tale, you know, um, these original series. But now if we can get some good features out there, I'm curious to see what they can do. Um, uh, in addition to this, I'm like a loose fan of the Predator, you know, alien movies. So uh, the fact that we're going to get another Predator, but it's now centuries before what we're used to, uh, that'll be that'll be a new take. That'll be something that I think will get me excited again to go see a Predator um, in the theaters. And then the Avatar news, you know, I'll believe it when I see it. <laughs> I'm going to keep saying that. Uh, how did you how did you feel, Brandon? How did you feel uh, reading this? What was the most impactful for you? Because I think this even like, condenses some of the other news that was included in the article we were stripping. Totally. And I encourage you to uh, watch the link in the description for this article, just because I think it is fascinating, just because, yes, in terms of what is coming out, but also in terms of, you know, Asbel is in a unique position in Hollywood right now, where his entire tenure as a president has been pandemic era filmmaking, which we talk about that as an era of Hollywood filmmaking. This has been his entire career for it. And I can only imagine the pressure that's been on him Beyond the Disney acquisition, just the actual state of theatrical releases in general, like I can only respect the guy for what he's been doing, again, only to an extent because I know, you know, the behind the scenes and everything, but still. Uh, as far as the actual projects themselves go, I will admit it's interesting seeing them talk about Free Guy as this very established property because, yes, it made a ton of money and in the pandemic nonetheless. But just because we're getting a sequel, you know, apparently Sean Levy's going to be pretty busy. I don't think Ryan Reynolds is going to stop being very busy, so I don't know when that's going to happen, but it sounds like they're leaning into that as a possible expansive franchise, maybe with some spinoffs here and there. Uh, and you mentioned the whole thing about, you know, Handmaid's Tale and that whole aspect of Hulu. You know, Hulu doesn't really have to worry about any TV stuff. They're good in that department. We're going to talk about Pam and Tommy later as an example of that. But I think in regards to, you're right, their theatrical releases, their actual like in-development feature films, I think this Hulu expansion is going to be really good for them. I think they're seeing what Apple TV is doing, scooping up, you know, Martin Scorsese and, you know, Mahershala Ali and all these really cool film talents that are developing properties for them. And I think they're looking at that and going, well, what is the future of us as, you know, Fox previous or like what's left of Fox? Because I think a lot of people do see them as sort of, you know, this not archaic, but like this relic of a bygone era of filmmaking just because of the Disney acquisition. Obviously, according to this, and I do take Asbel's comments at face value that Disney is keeping those filmmakers in-house, whether it's James Mangold, whether it's Guillermo del Toro, because frankly, they'd be fools not to with the amount of uh, good content and good word of mouth that they get around them. So that's great to hear. But at the same time, you know, I'm with you. That Predator movie sounds fascinating. I still might be too scared to see it, but I love Dan Trachtenberg. I love the premise behind it. Uh, and Avatar 2, you know what? I want to believe it. I really do. But like as much as, as many of Asbel's comments as I believe, I can't believe that one. I still have all the faith in the world in James Cameron. Again, it's Avatar 2. Like, we make jokes about it for a reason. But yeah, we'll just have to wait and see on that. Uh, Fresh is going to be coming out later. We might be talking, or no, I should say, might be talking about that later. 
Uh, we'll probably add that to the list as it goes forward. Let's move on to our third main topic today. This is the one that, of course, took the internet by storm. Super Bowl came around, and we mentioned, where's Kenobi? And everyone hated the memes, and we were all mad and happy at the same time. And now we can all be happy together, unless you look at the actual Disney bureaucracy of it all, and we'll get into that. But the Obi-Wan Kenobi first trailer has officially been released, and it looks awesome. Uh, the trailer showcases Ewan McGregor's return as Obi-Wan Kenobi 10 years after the events of Revenge of the Sith. And keeping an eye over young Luke Skywalker and away from the prying eyes of Darth Vader and the Empire. The series also notably sees Hayden Christensen coming back to return as Anakin Skywalker and Darth Vader, as well as Joel Edgerton and Bonnie Piercy as Uncle Owen and Emperor, respectively. Also joining the cast is uh, Moses Ingram from The Queen's Gambit, uh, Sun Kang from the Fast and Furious movies, Rupert Friend, and Kumail Nanjiani in a now unspecified role. The Mandalorian's Deborah Chow will be directing all the episodes, while Army of the Dead's uh, Joby Harold will be serving as the series writer. It will last six episodes and start dropping weekly on Disney Plus on May 25th. Noah, we have been waiting for this look for a long time. I've been looking for this for a decade, but I'll get into my history later. What has your history been with the long development of what Kenobi could have been as a movie, as a series, whatever? And what did you think of this trailer? Brandon, don't break my heart and say six episodes. <laughs> six episodes? But no. Noah, it's Disney Plus. It has to be. Oh, my Lord. Okay, getting to it. Obi-Wan, we're getting more sabers. I, you know, people say that the sabers are done to death, but I need a lightsaber in my Star Wars flicks. I love them. I, I, you know, I aspire to wield one one day, but we'll wait for that day to come. Um, like I said, Brandon, the music really said it for me and the memes that took off after we had uh, Obi-Wan looking through this like magnifying lens putting it down and then putting it back on. The internet had so much fun with that, especially Twitter. Um, There's a great one of uh, Vader giving him the middle finger. I think it's in Battlefront or something. Yes. And that's the content we need. Okay. <laughs> Over to you, Brandon. And this isn't the only Star Wars we're getting this year. Obviously we got Boba Fett. We're getting this. We're supposed to be getting uh, Cassian later this year with Diego Luna. We're supposedly getting more visions. We're supposedly getting more Bad Batch. I don't believe those rumors just yet, but yeah, this is not the last we're going to see of Star Wars this year. Uh, quick fun fact for you. Uh, the cinematographer behind this is actually Chung Hoon Chung, who did Last Night in Soho. And I didn't know that. And I was looking at that and just going, yeah, this seems like that. Even with their series that they're exploring in the Star Wars verse, tell me this one isn't elevated. Tell me it's not. I mean, it has to be... T- I'm convinced we're going to get some, maybe not, actually, for context, how much of Rebels have you watched? I'm out of the Rebel loop. I'll be careful what I say then, because I want you to watch it. Let's just say there's some things that they explore during that time period that I think Obi-Wan is going to tackle in some very visually trippy ways. If you watch Rebels, you know what I'm talking about, but I'm being uh, coy about it just for that sake. Um, I have been waiting for this for, I'm not exaggerating, over a decade. Um Revenge of the Sith was my first introduction to Star Wars. I fell in love with Ewan McGregor's portrayal. I have been wanting a solo film ever since I read, oh, I think it's John Jackson Miller who wrote the, he wrote a Legends book about this period of Obi-Wan's life. You know, I've read sort of the diary entries in the comics and like that. And I have been like salivating over the concept of this when like Stephen Daldry was attached at one point. Uh, Mr. Robot's creator, Sam Esmail was attached at one point. Like everyone has been attached to this at some point. And now we're finally getting it. And Ewan McGregor, God bless him, has finally had to stop being coy about it and just like, yes, I get to be Obi-Wan. And actually, I don't know if you saw this, but I retweeted, uh, there was an interview he did with Entertainment Weekly about his reuniting with Hayden. It's adorable. Like, you get this vibe that they are just like truly kindred spirits with one another. And I'm like, that's great that they get to work together and, you know, do this kind of thing again. 
Uh, I love that Deborah Chow is in charge of this. I love what she did with Mandalorian. I think she is maybe not the perfect person, but she's one of the top choices I would have envisioned to take this direction of Star Wars, of the idea of, like you mentioned, Obi-Wan is like the wise mentor, the center of good, the guy, who, but also the guy who has been through hell. Like he lost his master. He lost his surrogate son. He lost his entire surrogate family in the Jedi. If you watch Clone Wars, he lost the love of his life. Like he has lost so much. And to have to then spend what is essentially two decades alone in the desert with your thoughts, guarding someone who may, like Luke may grow up to be something, he might not, but you don't know that. Like, how does that affect you? I'm so excited to see what Shao and Harold do to tackle that and address that. Obviously, Hayden coming back is Darth Vader. I'm curious about Moses Ingram looks badass in this. Uh, I cannot wait to see what they do with the Inquisitors in this. I know some people are criticizing, like, ah, they don't look like the animated counterparts. I'm like, shut up. Like, she looks great. Like, the Grand Inquisitor stuff with Rupert Friend looks great. Uh, The Sun King stuff looks great. This is everything I needed in the trailer. I wish it had dropped under better circumstances because this had dropped the day that a lot of the revelations about Bob Chappick and the Don't Say Gay Bowl in Florida dropped out. And this was kind of a uh, PR deflection PowerPoint that a lot of people took it as. I agree with that. It felt very uh, kind of a sleazy move. But you know what? It works. Like, this is fantastic. I'm excited for it. I just wish it dropped under better circumstances. And we can't fall victim to those to those uh, circumstances, Brandon. Brandon informed me even who was like, you know, drooling all the same about this Obi-Wan trailer. And he mentions how convenient it was for this news to drop the same time that controversy starts to arise. And it's like, well, you can't take in one without considering the other. You know, this they are still a major company. They are still making plans and making moves to keep them in the better light. Um, So thank you, Brandon, for mentioning that. Let's move on to our quick hits. Uh, this is our rapid fire section of the day. We each pick one story that maybe wasn't enough for a full discussion portion, but we want to talk about it anyways. Uh, Noah, if you don't mind starting over to your quick hit with a minute on the clock. Hello, everybody. It is now my quick hit turn. I am returning to my comfortable seat as shouter of video game live action announcements, and I've got another one for you. So this is a collaborative effort from Sony Pictures Television and PlayStation Productions, and it is a new project. We are receiving a live action God of War, baby. Yes, we're talking Kratos. We're talking the Greek pantheon. We're talking now the Norse pantheon. If you're keeping up with the current video games, um, the franchise in real life is continuing to drop info around this next installment it's going to be the eighth video game in the series titled god of war ragnarok where we got um releases of new villains in thor and um additional characters if you want to keep up with the video game news um while no streaming service has officially announced being the platform for the god of war series um amazon prime is in negotiations uh this is all of course from a article on deadline uh and that is for the live action series preparing on their platform no casting announcements have really been made uh this is early discussion but I'm listening. Time. I saw a lot of people expecting this to go to HBO, and I was one of them, but someone who knows bare-bones stuff about God Award, this is really exciting. Oh, hell yeah. I mean, this character is, even at the will of the gods, he disobeys them and proves them wrong and then shows them what real power looks like. And he is just, let me tell you, Kratos, don't stand in his way. The Blades of Chaos, that's all I need to see. But my minute's up, Brandon. It's over to you for your quick hit. On to my quick hit in three, two. So look, as long as quick hits has been a thing, I'm going to talk about Muppets news if there's going to be a thing. And after Muppets Haunted Mansion, we're all wondering, is this going to be the resurgence of Muppets on Disney Plus? And it turns out it might be, but not how we expected. Uh, from Deadline, we've gotten confirmation on a brand new Muppet series focusing on Dr. Teeth and the Electric Mayhem Band. Of course, the sort of in-house 
jazz funk parliament style band from the Muppets franchise that I absolutely love so much. From the series synopsis, uh, the series will follow the Electric Mayhem Band as they go on an epic musical journey to finally record their first studio album after 50 years of being a band, sure. Uh, Lily Singh, of course, uh, Superwoman from YouTube, will play the human role of Nora, a driven A&R executive tasked with managing and wrangling the mayhem that is the Electric Mayhem Band. With the help of Nora, the old school Muppet band continues to come face to face with the current day music scene as they finally try and go platinum. As we've gotten confirmation, the Goldberg showrunner, Adam F. Goldberg, is set to write the series. No release date has been set. I'm ecstatic about this. I've always loved the Electric Mayhem's band. Uh, if you haven't watched it set from Outside Lands, it's phenomenal. But I cannot wait to see what they do with this and time. Brandon, what if we have in, like, in-studio recorded, you know, sessions, you and I, you play instruments. I, I don't, um, but, you know. You're literally holding a banjo. What can I say? <laughs> It's the roommates, but I just had to have fun. As soon as I heard you say the word band, my always distracted brain turned around and was like, look at this, a string instrument. We are taking a shift and some people may call it a dark shift, but we just call it a different kind of shift. Okay. What are you talking about? The Muppets are the darkest thing known to man. Let's just get into the Batman real quick. Uh, this is set two years after Bruce Wayne has become the Kate Crusader in this movie played by Robert Pattinson. Uh, in my opinion, maybe at one of his peaks, but we'll get into that. Uh, Bruce is dealing with a lot of stuff. He's still processing the trauma of his parents. He is dealing with a lot of the uh, new political change with a new mayoral candidate played by Jamie Lawson. But then a serial killer enters into Gotham's mist, uh, eventually known as the Riddler, played by Paul Dano, who targets Gotham's elite. He kind of has... This very populist take, but a very maniacal and psychopathic way of getting at it. Uh, in the process of trying to figure out the Riddler's plan, uh, Bruce comes into contact with Selina Kyle, who is a waitress at the Club of the Penguin, played by Selina Kyle and Colin Farrell, respectively. I should say Kravitz plays Catwoman, Farrell plays uh, Cobblepot. It's not the other way around. I understand if that's confusing. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so we have that. Uh, we have a lot of stuff with uh, Andy Serkis as Bruce's loyal butler, Alfred. We have Jeffrey Wright in there as Commissioner Gordon. I should say Lieutenant Gordon. He's not Commissioner yet. And the whole movie is kind of these two interweaving plots between uh, Bruce and Selena's relationship in trying to track down an old friend of Selena's who may be involved with Riddler's plans and, of course, Colbot's um, criminal activities. And then also the main plot of the story, which is just Bruce trying to track down the Riddler, who is seemingly outsmarting him in every move and maybe knows a thing or two about Batman and his history than we might have realized. Noah, over to you first. Uh, this has been a movie that we've been excited about for a long time and made both of our most anticipated lists. What did you think of it? Because there is a lot to dive into and we don't have a lot of time on this particular episode too, but what did you think? I think that, first of all, um, claps and kudos to you, Brandon. You always provide some excellent introductions and this time is no different. Thank you, Thank you for that. Yeah, that was an excellent summary of what the Batman has to bring to audiences. Um, but before we mention anything con uh, story-related, what a ride that this was. What a ride that, you know, we waited in line for. It was that big, tall, you know, Six Flags ride that you were like, damn, am I really going to be in line for like two hours for? Yeah, you are. But you're going to be around your friends. You're going to be around your buddies just talking about how exciting the, the trip is going to be. And that's what this was for me. You know, uh, myself and, and a couple of friends, we sat in our chairs, <laughs> 11 o'clock showing, getting ready for this three hour movie. And um going, okay, let's enter this world and let's just, let's take in all that it has to offer. Oh boy, was there so much to offer. That's, that's really why we decided to do a mini so because Brandon, having seen it, I'm sure you were well aware of how much there was going to be to unpack and just be mesmerized by in this film, um, in a solo film, disconnected from the other franchises, like you receiving new portrayals of characters that we, um, 
a lot of them we've seen before. You know, I think the only one that we know, I think a lot of the major players here, we've all had adaptations from before. It's funny because you mentioned that Selena Kyle plays Catwoman, <laughs> but you meant, and then you cracked yourself. You said Zoe Kravitz, but let me tell you, no, Selena Kyle is playing Catwoman because holy crap, do we get a, an amazing portrayal of that character um, in Zoe Kravitz's portrayal. I'm so happy that we were kind of winding up for it with our Kimmy coverage the week before. But damn, I mean, l- let me start talking about some of the best things that I found in this movie. So one thing for sure is this is Gotham at its, what I think, uh, visually is its darkest, um, gloomy, even when it's daylight time, we have nothing, we have, we do not have clear skies. Um, the skyline is incredible. I think what really sealed the, at, at least, you know, placed me in Gotham was the set pieces that they had to, to have me believe that I was there. Like Batman's meetings with Commissioner, or I'm sorry, Lieutenant Gordon on the rooftop where they have the bat signal. Speaking of which, this movie brings the intensity and carries it throughout its three-hour runtime. Um, I've heard it be compared to, like, detective series, and that was one of the inspirations. If you listen to, like, interviews with Matt Reeves, his inspirations were um, producing a Batman film that follows the detective nature of Bruce Wayne. And that's what I think I loved of this movie, is I didn't get the same... I didn't get the same um, experience while I was with Bruce Wayne and the Batman. Like it wasn't um, all about his gadgetry or his um, combat, um, you know, his tacticians, his, his tacticness as a combatician, but it was him being the unraveler that he is able to see multiple perspectives and apply them to a focused situation. I could go on and on, but I don't want to spew off at the mouth, Brandon. Tell me some of those top level stuff that you really want to mention. I'm surprised that you made the Six Flags comparison. I had to look it up. There is a Batman ride and I did not know that. Uh, I have been excited for this for a long time. I adore Matt Reeves' work on the Planet of the Apes movies. Uh, and actually, James Chinlin, who was the production designer on those movies, comes back to direct us. I'm so glad you brought up the idea of the skyline and the sort of seediness they developed with Gotham, only enhanced by Grieg Fraser's cinematography. Grieg Fraser is a freaky magician. If you, We mentioned him in depth on our June reviews, so go check that out. He is a magician when it comes to lighting sources and when it comes to pops of color in this. Yes, it's dark. Yes, it uses blacks and shadows and grays to its advantage. But the dashes of color in this are prevalent and they are beautiful. And I think there's a lot of really great symbols, in particular in the third act with the actual like final confrontation between him and Riddler and his forces. Again, I won't spoil it, but it's amazing. Robert Pattinson defines the role. Uh, he really does in a way that I don't think any other uh, in any other live action capacity. I don't think we've seen the character since the animated series, since Young Justice, since incarnations like that. I think he he's very much playing Wayne as a recluse, which is defined because, slight spoiler, we don't see Bruce Wayne in the movie that much. Uh, it's very much a Batman and Bruce Wayne is the mask type scenario. But I also love where they take it. I love the dichotomy of the two. I love how Alfred has to bring out the humanity in him. And Selina later on, even though she has no interest in being aligned with Batman, has that effect on him as well. I love the sense of community that Gotham is building around with a Jamie Lawson character. I wish she got a bit more in depth, but I like what she represents. And just everyone in this movie is fantastic. Like, Jeffrey Wright is a phenomenally charismatic Commissioner Gordon. You mentioned Zoe Kravitz, who, again, maybe I don't know if she's the best live-action Catwoman. Again, Pfeiffer and Eartha Kitt have my heart. But Zoe Kravitz makes the role entirely her own in kind of a more twisted sense, uh, in more of a kind of deeper sense than I think has been given to a lot of previous incarnations. Paul Dano, who is just hamming it up at certain points. He's not in the movie that much, but when he is, he's really leaning into it. And again, just Matt Reeves' direction knows what to focus on, knows how long to get us for. If I have any 
And that's your quick hit. You are, you are <laughs> your quick hit. Thank you, Brandon. <laughs> the longest quick hit in history. Uh, no, but if I have anything negative to say about this movie, uh, I, I think some of the writing gets a little bit too in-depth. It's taking a lot from Hitchcock Mysteries, taking a lot from Batman Long Halloween, which all of you should read if you were interested in this movie. It takes a little bit too many twists and turns with the whole Riddler mystery, with the ciphers, the whole Zodiac aesthetic of it all. I found it in the like last hour to be a bit too, oh, here's where everything ties in. I was still into it. I was still fully focused on the characters and the mythology that Reeves was created. But I can totally see how people might lose themselves in the, in the last hour of this movie just because of its length. But my God, if you are willing to stick with it, I love it so much. I'm, I mean, in discussing negatives, I mean, for people approaching this film, um, yes, a lot of people are just diving headfirst into the three hour runtime. But for those of you who are like, I don't know, does it feel long? The answer is yes. Like it does feel long. I mean, yeah. Um, I went with my, I went with my partner and it was funny because so she's a barista. She wakes up in the morning. She has to go to work, whatever. It's 12 o'clock and I look over at her. She's snoring. And so I kind of tap her and it happens two or three more times where I'm like, Hey, like wake up. And the third time before I could tap her, she grabbed my arm and she's like, let me sleep. <laughs> and so let me tell you, that was the real horror of my watch experience. Um, one other thing to note for me is that uh, this brooding Batman, you have the caped face, you have this huge cape and these heavy boots that you really feel when you're watching him come on screen. Like he can come out of the darkness and you're already terrified because of how intimidating those boots are as they stomp against the ground. But the brooding Batman to me was hilarious when he was placed alongside like some of Gotham's just like regular police officers because the the tone here is just it's captured so well in how I imagined it would be for a Batman movie because you you would still kind of react like this guy's ridiculous but the reputation that that suit the symbol that that suit represents is like it can be overwhelming for some people so it's it's like a celebrity but it's like so much darker like you're, you're and more... only and only in about two years like this isn't a long-term Batman this is early Batman. Um, and then I, I have in my notes here that the music is like your pathfinder. Oh my God. Don't get me started on the music. Brandon opening with something in the way, like the remix that they did from Nirvana. Oh my gosh. That was like, Hey, we're going to be the ones leading the trail. Like the movie will follow us, but this, the music is really what's like, it's setting the path. And I, I fell in love with it. I really did. If you want to move on to ratings, I'm ready. Let's do it. Uh, I actually did a review for ASU Odyssey if anyone want to check it out. Uh, link in the description. Uh, for me, this is a, again, very strong nine. If it had slightly better pacing and just a few more tweaks to the whole Riddler cipher mystery of it all, I'd probably love it a lot more. But again, as far as comic book movies of the 2020s go, this is about as strong a start as you can get. I am in awe of this movie visually, technically, narratively, acting wise. It has so much going for it. Again, if you've never been a fan of the character, if you're not a fan of the dark and gritty style of Batman and you wanted something else, I cannot say this is for you. But if you are willing to stick with it, Matt Reeves has created about as close to a masterwork of the genre in both noir and comic storytelling as you can get. I adore this. Excellent, Brandon. For me, the rating is going to be uh, it's going to be a 9.5. I walked away with this, nothing but satisfaction going on in my head and in my heart. I, I got a superhero movie that felt like so much more. It's felt like so much more, um, had been paid to, like you said, like the narrative sense performances across the board. Colin Farrell was, um, tremendous as Penguin. I would be so willing to, to watch a series involving him. Um, well, luckily you can <laughs> firing off at the mouth. Um, I want to see Catwoman again. Uh, Robert Pattinson to me was a, was a perfect choice for the next for this iteration of Bruce Wayne that we needed to see. And um, if you're looking for like a Batman story that has its connective threads being a series of murders, 
this is the movie for you. Like this is the movie to invest in some of those, um, in some of that crime drama that we haven't always seen in other Gotham um, iterations. Um, and we'll be talking crime drama later from another Batman, but let's save that for the future. Um, thank you. Well, I don't know why I said thank you, but moving on. <laughs> Thank you for listening, all of you out there for tuning in. Uh, and of course, the Batman is playing in theaters right now. I believe it's supposed to go either on VOD and or HBO Max later in April, I should say. So check it out there if you are interested. We're going to move on to our next movie of the day, Turning Red. This is the latest movie from Pixar. Uh, supposed to be released in theaters. And Disney said, nope. And they are not in my good graces for that. But now they're here north there. Dami Shi uh, directs the movie. Of course, she directed the Pixar short Bao. I'm forgetting which movie it played in front of, but it was the movie with the uh, dumplings and the mother and that kind of thing. Fantastic short film if you haven't seen it. This follows uh, Malin Lee, voiced by, I had the actress's name in front of me, uh, Rosalie Chang. Uh, she is a 13-year-old Chinese-Canadian girl who... She's basically a straight-A student. She has a great friend group around her. She's She loves her parents, uh, who in this movie are voiced by Sandra Oh and Orion Lee, actually, from First Cow, who I was surprised to see to hear him in this. Um, they run a temple that is devoted to their ancestors. Iconography of the Red Panda, we'll get into it. Uh, May loves being around her friends, but she doesn't want to disappoint her parents, who, again, want the best for her. But her mother specifically, again, voiced by Sandra Oh, is very strict, very well-disciplined, very insistent on her future. One day, uh, May gets into a disagreement with her parents about a concert, and she turns into a red panda. And she, of course, is wondering, what is this? Why is this thing? And her parents basically tell them, well, because our family, and specifically the women in our family, have had a long line of initially a, uh, what is essentially a superpower, later a curse, as to defend themselves and the ones they love to turn into the beast, a.k.a. the red panda. She doesn't really like this, but eventually she kind of figures out a way to lead it to her advantage, maybe uh, influence her self-love in the process, uh, and maybe even help her friends go to see a fantastic boy band named Four Town with songs written by Billie Eilish and Phineas O'Connell. We'll get into that. Uh, Noah, I love this movie. I want to get over to you. Uh, did you see Bao, which is uh, Domi Shi's directorial uh, project for this? And what do you think of Turning Red? And should this have played in theaters? Yes, I did see Bao. And approaching Turning Red, I was saddened by the fact that it was going to be a straight to streaming rather than um, like a premier title wide release. I was really looking forward to seeing this um, on the big screen, especially with the story that it explored and the characters that it centralized. I just was so ready for this. And it looked adorable uh, regarding the colors, regarding the sense of focus that like, it's not the camera, but you know, like the sort of like the, the camera in the animation that it has, um, which which I also found to just be um just beautiful to watch. So um, it's, let me just say this real quickly. It's a story about puberty, right? Uh, yeah, big time. Okay. <laughs> I was making sure that I wasn't like connecting the wrong dots. I was like, this is a puberty story, right? There are at least three elongated jokes about periods that are not about periods. While I was watching it, the, this idea came to my mind where in the intro, we have Mei Lin and she introduces herself like kind of as this uh, do whatever she wants character. You know, she's a ter- determiner of her own destiny um, when she's left to her own devices. But in the eyes of her family, she kind of has to conform to their practices, their ideologies, um, even as she surrounds herself with a friend group that is much like her and not like her family, um, she still feels the pressure of, you know, making her family proud and being who her family expects her to be. And I think that that's all too relatable for, you know, any of us remembering, remembering our teen years and what it meant to like find our own family versus, um, you know, coming back home to, to who our family was and, and recognizing and respecting both sides of that. So I liked the age that they chose to explore this story at. And it was a new angle too, because 
these are fangirls around a boy band. And we, I was like, we, when have we seen this? Like, it's so special in the moments that it captures between early teens and what they, what they um, admire, what they prioritize and what they struggle with. And I think that that's something I, it's been a while since I've seen done well. This is done beautifully. I have, I don't know if I tweeted this out yet, but I called it a new Pixar classic. And I don't say that lightly because this is a studio that I think has churned out for the most part masterpieces. And I'm surprised you didn't mention Luca because to me, that film and now this are two examples of where Pixar is going uh, forward in the future. Because I think for so long, we kind of associated a brand and a story structure and a character style to Pixar. And I think between this and Luca, we're seeing them really kind of allowing, yes, diverse creators, but really weird creators to like play with their toys and kind of things like that. And this is getting to play with them in the best way. Like it's adventurous, it's exciting, but at the same time, it's incredibly heartfelt. Uh, it's a story about puberty that is I think universally relatable. I've seen some people say the specificity turns them off. I don't know what movie they watched. I was cringing in the best way the entire time of like, this was me or my friends or like, I knew a person like that. Like, if you remember that time, this is going to resonate. Um, Brandon, tell me you didn't love the scene where, where she imagines her, herself with her crush, whose name is Devin. He's like a cool store clerk. Oh, yeah. He's a cool <laughs> store clerk. And she just like doodles his face, like just haphazardly. And then she goes maniacal and like hides under her bed, sweating, like drawing up what would, what would I imagine is like the equivalent of like just these love doodles over and over. And then the sweat that she feels when her mom walks in and almost opens her notebook. Oh no, no spoilers. Well, yes, it's early in the movie. It's it's, I know, I know. <laughs> but like, even beyond that, like there's scenes with like, you know, girls in like a locker room and like they're talking about like what they think of Bailey in terms of like her own self-respect or like there's a bully character who then kind of turns out a different way is more complicated. Like, I love how this movie addresses like the adult stuff is great, too, but the kid stuff is just phenomenal. I love getting to see just, again, kids being weird and eclectic. And also, like, you know, the character designs are like overly adulted like this is what kids that age would look like with you know the braces and the hairstyles and like we all had that to some degree if we even if we forget it uh but as far as the mythology stuff like it goes interesting like the red panda stuff i think the actual mythology is a little bit played fast and loose but it's meant to be that way because that's not the focus like the focus is how that affects may and her mother ming as well when you're ready i feel ready for ratings yeah, for me, this is a very strong 9 out of 10. Again, it's a new Pixar classic. Again, I don't say that lightly, but I think everything about what Domi Shi does here is relatable and poignant and adventurous. And I won't even spoil the ending, but it's something that I wish I could have seen in theaters. Uh, the voice cast is great. The animation is crisp and lovely. And again, goes to the, the degrees of adventuring that Pixar animation has done in the past. But again, it's the story you come for. It's the characters you come for. You will, if you are, If you have ever been in that kind of situation, and most of us have, you will adore and respect this movie to a degree that I think, at least to me, I wasn't expecting. I was expecting this to be cute time cleanser of nothing else. And I found so much more from it. Brandon, I was expecting, oh no, at random times, I am going to just spontaneously burst into a red panda. And then like- And it is that. And they go on a field trip or something. And then it's like a wacky adventure. But no, it has another layer. It's all about like what it feels like to be that age and to come to terms with a, a- a body, a life that's changing and a role in your family that 
could change even in, in even in that early year. Um, for me, this is an eight, eight out of 10. Uh, the movie's adorable. I think her relationship with her friends is beautiful and family-like love. And even her relationship with her mother, it's tricky at times, but her mom knows how to support her during these struggles, regardless of whether Maylin was listening or not. And that was beautiful to see. Um, the story's most important turns. Uh, so from my viewing experience, they circled around not missing the moment. So that had to do with like a boy band tour coming to town and that lining up with like this ritual that has to take place. And Maylin really wants to experience, you know, she wants to have a memory with her friends. And to me, the turns in the story were accepting that sometimes, you know, we grow with our parents, but we can sometimes grow at an angle and it doesn't look one way. And for me, that was that spoke volume. So Pixar, you know, I'm standing up, I'm applauding you. I wish it was done in theaters, but hey, I have a projector. I'll do some kind of screening at my own house. Um, it was wonderful. I hope you all get a chance to watch it. It is streaming on Disney+. Plus. And of course, I will be campaigning for any of those Billy and uh, Phineas songs to be campaigning at the Oscars next year. Uh, we are going to move on to our final new release for this week, The Adam Project. Uh, we foreshadowed Sean Levy and Ryan Reynolds earlier. This is their newest project from Netflix after Free Guy, I think. Yeah, because it's... Yeah, so two movies in the span of less than a year, which is frankly really impressive. Uh, this has been apparently in development hell for a while. Then Sean and Ryan took it up, and now it's over at Netflix. It stars Ryan Reynolds as Adam Reed. He is a pilot in 2050 who basically steals a time jet, time ship, whatever you, time machine, whatever you want to call it, uh, back to supposedly another year, but he lands in 2022, where he meets his younger self, played by Walker Scobell, who is an actor who I believe this is his first film role. The two of them kind of had this weird back and forth. Uh, the older Adam doesn't quite remember himself in childhood. The younger one is more interested in all of like these kind of facetious things. And it's this really great back and forth until Catherine Keener shows up, who is a sort of uh, dystopian dictatorship type uh, CEO character from the future that Adam, that Ryan Reynolds' Adam is from. She then comes to the past to seemingly try and fix something that Ryan Reynolds' character is trying to figure out. Long story short, they didn't have to travel back to 2018 to find assistance from Adam's late father, played here by Mark Ruffalo. And the three of them kind of have to just figure out what this thing is that Catherine Keener's character wants uh, while fighting about themselves in the way their sort of family dynamics and what this means to the time stream into their own timelines as well. Uh, for me, at least, I was excited about this. I remember hearing about this and kind of thinking, oh, this sounds, you know, interesting. Free guy. I've since soured on, but I've really enjoyed it for what it, for what it kind of offered. And beyond that, I think what Adam Project does is offer a sincerity and a sense of camaraderie to it that I think that movie kind of lacked. It's not necessarily special. It doesn't redefine the wheels on any conventions and it's six or not really explained, and we'll get into that if we do, but to me, I really enjoyed this. Uh, Noah, over to you. What were you expecting with this after Free Guy for a movie that seemed, yes, blockbustery, but also a bit more sentimental? Okay, so my early notes are where I expected a family sci-fi movie and like heavy on the word family. Like I expected this to be more inclined like towards younger audiences um, in the same vein of like spy kids all the time in the world, which... I thought was terrible. Sorry, Pedro Pascal and Jessica Alba. I love you both. Um, but instead you got a, like a well-produced moving. I thought what was like top of the class, like family action movie, like this movie took me for a ride and it picks up and goes. I'm thankful that we don't spend too much time playing the catch up game of like, who is younger Adam and why is he so important? It is sprinkled in the beginning, uh, but we, we find out more about who Adam is, is as a character 
who exists in time because we have, you know, the kid version and the adult um, time traveler version. And that's sprinkled out throughout the story. Uh, but having our hero be the older Adam made the younger one more fun to watch because he's, he's portraying, you know, all the Ryan Reynolds kind of like isms, you know, quirks that he does just if he was like a 10 year old jerk, you want to do kids as central characters in a movie, do it like it. I freaking love the way they did uh, the child characters in it, but moving on, it's a time traveling story. So of course it doesn't really make sense, but oh, well, you're here, you're watching it, go along with it. I think Mark Ruffalo's character represents that very well, where he's like, no, like these are the science and the time rules and you can, and Ryan Reynolds is like, okay, but I'm from the future. So let's just move past that. Um, <laughs> and we have this kind of recurring trend between like this and Endgame of just like, no, time travel is BS. Right. And they're just like, okay, but so long as we have a scene acknowledging that it, it doesn't work, we're still going to use it. Mark Ruffalo as a nerd dad was great. Actually got me emotional near the end because, you know, a, some pieces come together that uh, you, you will realize after watching it and like, you know, putting together, oh, that's what that's what this quote meant. Oh, OK. Um, I was inclined to believe this was going to be a family movie because, of course, Adam is portrayed as an adult and a kid. But this movie felt really mature in its efforts to tell a story of this lost soldier doing what he can to get back to his love. And it is a great return of another super Zoe in uh, Zoe Saldana. She comes in and her entering scene was a great action sequence. I think that coming off of Free Guy, like I'm, I'm really all for this man's action style and his directing style for Reynolds because he captures more depth out of him than I, than I would have expected. And that's what I got out of this. So I'm coming off of this with, with some, some grins and some thumbs up and, yeah, I, I didn't mind watching this at all. How about you, Brandon? I don't concede that this isn't a family movie. I think that, yes, there are some more risque moments in it, but I think overall it is a movie about recognizing the potential of both your younger and older selves, and I think that's what Sean Levy works so well in this, particularly with Walter Scovel, who is a bit too good as the younger Ryan Reynolds. Like, it's not on him. He is doing what is asked of him, and he is doing a great job with it. But I feel like Levy and the script, uh, T.S. Nolan and a couple other writers wrote this. I feel like they're focusing a bit too much on the the gimmick of that, you know, oh, it's his younger self. It's Ryan Reynolds' younger self. So it's going to be, you know, raunchy and sarcastic and witty. And and to be fair, like Scoble is doing that. And the initial scenes are great. But as we get further in the runtime, I found myself going, OK, this kid's 12. Like he should not be this emotionally mature for his age. Again, maybe that's just me coming from what this movie is going for, that as you get older, you remember you remember less of your younger self. But I couldn't, I found it a little less uh, relatable. I will say the movie as a whole, there is, again, like you mentioned, there's an emotionality to it that I think works. There is a pacing that, of it that I found, like, it flies by. Uh, if you want to compare this to Free Guy, Free Guy had some moments that I thought really drad, kind of sat itself in the techno world a bit more. This really just kind of does what it needs to do. It sets up its rules, and then it does it, and I can admire it for doing that. It's not particularly special at the end of the day in terms of story, in terms of stakes. I think Catherine Keener's character is a bit wasted. Like there's one scene later on with her and another version of herself that I thought was really cool. But as we get into it later, I just wish there was more to it. But again, like it's fun. I found more emotionality to it. There is a purpose to the narrative heft to it. So I enjoyed it. Yeah, she plays, you know, the head of that um, tech company that ultimately like takes power into her own hand. But seeing her go back to the past and interview or not interview, but like planning meeting with her past self, that was pretty, I liked that. I thought that scene really made her character for me, at least valuable. Like then I was like, okay, like you're carrying weight in the story. You're not just some big bad in a spaceship, you know, blowing people up. 
but then like it doesn't really do anything with it like we get that scene and then we get the climax and then she kind of just shows back up like she is a placeholder villain for stakes that i like i think you could have just made this movie and it is partly this but you could have just made this movie the versions of the adams who get the chance to talk to their dad and that's the poignancy of it yes there's time travel involved and maybe you can still have that but you don't need like oh a shady business figurehead to kind of lock it all together like i don't think it's necessary although i will say you mentioned zoe saldana I love the chemistry between Ryan Reynolds and Zoe. Like, they're actually really good. It's a little annoying at times, but annoying in, like, a really cute, kind of really profound way of their characters, especially if there's a scene in the cabin that I really appreciated. With that being said, I gave this film a seven. I thought that this is another great original from Netflix that is up to par with, like, some of the wide releases. Like, it looks good. The effects here look yeah. real good. And um, I wasn't expecting that just from this, you know, this this Netflix film that premieres and I don't really hear a word about on socials, but you know, it still does have some kind of impact to the general audience. For me, this is a solid 7.5. Uh, I know some people have called me like, oh, it's generic. It's, you know, the effects are kind of not there. The time travel stuff isn't really there. And I'm like, maybe, like, I think in terms of the spectacle, it's not really there. It certainly doesn't go for broke like Free Guy does. But whereas that film, I felt kind of faltered in, you know, kind of the, the brand recognition and the, you know, the kind of recognizable element to it. This is something where it's taking those genre pastiches, whether it's Amblin films, whether it's time travel movies, and kind of blending it into this, you know, Ryan Reynolds, Sean Levy mixer of it all. That is not going to be for everyone. I've seen a lot of people not really care for it, but I enjoyed it for what it is. I enjoyed the family heft of it, the back and forth between Reynolds and Scoble as the two versions is great. I like, we didn't mention uh, Jennifer Gardner as um, Ryan Reynolds' character mom. She has one fantastic scene in a bar that I thought was really impactful, but Again, it's a movie that doesn't need to try for everything it does, but it succeeds more than I think it fails. And The Adam Project is, of course, streaming on Netflix right now. You can check it there if you are so interested. We're going to move on to our television segment for today. We've got three shows to check out. We're going to start off with HBO Max's Our Flag Means Death. This is coming to us from Taika Waititi and also People of Earth's David Jenkins, if you watch that show. It is loosely based on the idea of Steve Bonnet, who was apparently a real pirate. He was a very rich landlord. He had a family. And then just one day up and decided to become a pirate for a life of adventure. And he was evidently good or bad or somewhere in between, depending on the historical records that you read. In this show, uh, Reese Darby from the Jumanji movies, from a bunch of other things, he plays Steve Bonnet. Uh, notably called the Gentleman Pirate because he does not like blood. He doesn't like confrontation. And he tries to be nice to his crew, uh, which includes Matthew Maher as Black Pete, who claims to have crewed with Blackbeard at one point. You have Vico Ortiz as Jim who may or may not be what they seem. Uh, you have um, Samson Kayo as Olawande, who is a high-level crewmate, who's kind of a friend to Steed, kind of takes pity on him, sort of, so to speak. And then, of course, later on in the series, you have Taika Waititi himself as Edward Teach, a.k.a. Blackbeard. May or may not be made of smoke, may not have mystical powers. We don't know yet. The series hasn't really gone there. You also have uh, Leslie Jones, Fred Armisen, uh, Kristen Shaw popping in there at certain points. The show is essentially, I describe it as like The Office on the High Seas. It is essentially Steve Bonnet is the Michael Scott of the series. It's very much a workplace comedy, but with pirates. And um, you start to see the dynamic between Steed and another kind of uh, privateer played by Rory Kinnear, who he was friends with, was basically a bully with for a long time, long story short. And I think this is delightful. But uh, no, I want to go over to you first. I, so, I, I put this over to you and you didn't really know what to make of it. So now coming on to the series, and I believe you watched also watched the first two episodes. When you first mentioned Our Flag Means Death, I think I looked at you like, what are you talking about? And it means Our Flag Means Death. <laughs> I had to go and uh, check out the trailer and realize that it's a pirate story, but it's with pirates who, who like 
it's it's the version of pirates who are like, hey, we just have a bad rap. Like, this is actually what pirate life is like. And it's like the day-to-day of pirate life, which I think is a hilarious spectacle to turn into a turn into a series that we have not. I can't remember seeing it before. And um I wasn't aware Taika Waititi was gonna show up in this until um, I was reviewing the cast list and I was like, okay, he's in this, but when does he show up? And that's because in the first two episodes, um, they really set up the legend of Blackbeard. So who this character is going to be, um, you know, the type of wave that's going to come if they end up crossing paths with him. The first few episodes though, the first two, uh, this is a new, this is a new HBO original show. So they really just kind of set the bar for what the show is going to, uh, represent. And with the title like Our Flag Means Death, it wasn't surprising for the first episode to include a bit where they're all, all pirates are tasked with designing what their flag is going to look like. Actually, now that I think about it, I'm like, how did he fall into this place? But anyways, um, I'm thinking about the crew and I'm thinking the last thing they want to do is like go around in a circle and be like, well, who here knows how to sew? And then one of the jokes is this pirate over here, <laughs> he sewed up his arm, like, you know, back when he got slashed by whatever. <laughs> yeah. And they're like, okay, see, sewing can be tough and so that's how he gets all of his pirates um to kind of like calm themselves down and be able to sit with peace and design a pirate flag and that is the first episode and it is it really um gives you the tone of what the show's going to capture uh and it was nice to see some familiar faces i was looking over um because i was watching this with a roommate and i was like hey this is like a little game of thrones reunion because yes you do have um christian Nairn um who plays hodor in the god in the game of thrones series as a pirate on this crew as well as joel fry who at one point in the game of thrones series is connected to uh khaleesi you know daenerys's character so seeing them both um share the screen again i was just like oh damn look at this like it's nice to have it's nice to have some of these people back so um you know my early notes are just that this is really enjoyable it's new it's it's fresh from the from the sense of what angle it's trying to portray which is like comedic day-to-day life on a pirate ship where you have this kind of classy captain who does not want to fight who does not want to kill maybe his actions lead to those consequences but those are not his intentions and i think that's what's so hilarious this was clearly on your radar taika doing a pirate show i thought was a fantastic idea we should also mention he directs the first episode he's set to direct i think another couple episodes down the line uh in terms of the humor i'm particularly uh I'm particular to Ewan Bremer's moment when he's talking with Steed and, he, and Steed's like, oh, what is a, what does a raid entail? Oh, raids are like snowflakes. Oh, like none are like the other. No, actually snowflakes is a bad metaphor. There's a lot of blood, <laughs> like just very blunt humor like that. And you can tell that that's a bit of Taika, a bit of the, and I think the office influence is way too prevalent in this, like between the stakes of it all, the, the way the character archetypes work, the secrets behind it. Again, Jim has a really cool arc to them that I won't quite specify, but I think it's a really neat uh, kind of twist on pirating history. And it looks cheap, but I think that's part of the charm. Uh, I love Reese Darby in this. I think he's having an absolute time playing Steve Bonnet. Uh, just like, again, the quirkiness, the poshness of it all. I love the sporting cast too. I like the music behind it. And again, just like the scenarios that this crew gets put behind. I think once Blackbeard enters the fray, this show is really going to take a turn into, oh, this is pirating, like some more Pirates of the Caribbean and Black Sails, like things that we might be used to. But for now, like it's a fun workplace comedy with pirates. And I think there's nothing wrong with that. Obviously, we praise Taika here on the pod. I will always rave about Jojo Rabbit. Whenever we can fit that into some kind of new segment, Brandon, we will talk Jojo Rabbit together. But until then... um, 
you know, these are, I think there's three or even four episodes now out on HBO Max for Our Flag Means Death. And As, one, at the time of we recording this, there's six. Okay, then that means the show's nearly wrapped up and I can't wait to see Taika as Blackbeard because based on his credits, it looks like he's going to be in the show for the latter half. Totally. And uh, you can check this out on HBO Max, uh, HBO as well, if you have that. Let's move on to Amazon. Uh, we've been basically covering every streaming service for today. Uh, the Legend of Vox Machina. I haven't wanted to talk about the show for weeks. Wait, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, the boys at Plot Devices, we are busy. <laughs> In the immortal words of Howard Wallowitz from The Big Bang Theory, contrary to popular belief, we do have lives. Um, this is Amazon's take on the Critical Role franchise, if you are familiar with them, the YouTube series from Matthew Mercer and Ashley Johnson and a lot of people like that. I am familiar with their work outside of Critical Role. I've never watched an episode, so I was coming into this very uh, bare bones. It's essentially a, a series focusing on the story of the first season of the uh, Critical Role web series, you have a whole camaraderie of characters, uh, Laura Bailey and Liam O'Brien as Vex and Vax, the elven siblings who are rogues, mostly noble, but kind of stick to their own uh, devices. You have uh, Pike, played by Ashley Johnson, who is a very religious cleric gnome of uh, the Everlight Goddess, which is kind of this like light deity. You have Marisha Ray as Keyleth, who is a druid who controls plants. You have Sam Rigel as Scanlan, who is a gnome bard who is the biggest perv of the show, maybe of the year. You have Travis Willingham as Grog, who is essentially uh, a Hulk in the series, like, but a bit smarter. And of course, Talison Jaffe as Percy, who is what the whole series is focused around. Percy has a past that he doesn't like to disclose. He's a gunslinger slash inventor. One day they have a job for the King of the Kingdom, played by Carrie Payton. And it essentially leads into this whole conspiracy that might involve Percy's past, that might involve two very sketchy characters, uh, voiced by Greg Griffin and also Matthew Mercer who want to do something shady with the dead and with Percy's old home and potentially with Percy's entire family as well. The group embarks to Percy's old home and we essentially start this weird campaign that is basically that. It's a D&D campaign in animation form. Noah, are you familiar with Critical Role at all, just as I was not? And what did you think of Legends of Vox Machina just from the first half? Coming from the same place as you, uh, we're off the same boat, Brandon. I wasn't as okay, familiar yeah. with Critical Role. I would consider myself a fan of like this fantasy style that includes like orcs. It includes druids and clerics and all that. Like I'm here for that. My outlet is like playing Hearthstone or playing like Diablo or um, Magic the Gathering. Like that's where I get all of that fantasy from. To me, like the animation style and even the kind of not exactly the same themes, but I was reminded a lot of The Legend of Korra here. And uh, they balance a large roster of characters. I mean, The Legend of Vox Machina um, centers around the group itself. So we're not really going on like one person's tale. And if we did, I was hoping that it would be the cleric or I was hoping that it would be the druid or maybe even um, maybe even Stanlin because I'm curious about how his abilities relate to the music that he plays, because I think that that could be an interesting line to follow. Um, the person I was least interested in because I thought they were kind of just a gunslinger was Percy who ends up becoming the person's backstory that we explore as a group. Um, because I just thought, you know, there's nothing for me as a fan of the supernatural and in a fantasy world, I wanted something that was un like intangible for the real world here. And right now all we have is like the machine that he invents, which is like his pistol. As you watch the series, you see the different sides to Percy that there is like Vox Machina knows one he may have several that he's hiding. And as we explore what his story is, 
then I was on board. You know, this is a series that the episode, episode run really gets you just because you're understanding how the team functions. Like, yeah, they're kind of the ragtag, like they don't really work like hand in hand with each other, but they all operate as a team and they ultimately get the job done. But each episode kind of gave me a reason to continue it. Like this is a series that is effective, that uses their pace very effectively because we see them as a group in episode one, episode two, they take down a a big dragon that was a threat to the kingdom. And now they're appointed to the king, like being sort of like the kingdom's guard in a sense. And so they dispatch them on missions and then they have to explore Percy's background. We have our cleric um, having trouble connecting to her power. So we have a short side plot with her, um, which was also greatly done. I thought I can't wait till she's back with the troop actions there. You got a bloody mess whenever they conduct their business. We got a lot of funny quips coming off of grog. Hilarious. I should mention, I've already finished this, so I need to stay tempered because I don't want to spoil anything. Um, yeah, in retrospect, I probably should have gotten a guest on here who knows Critical Role because we are both coming from this from just the context of the show. I have finished the entire show. This whole thing dropped in February, and I was watching it week by week. And you mentioned the idea of pacing and the idea of length behind it. Oh, my God. Like, this is such a great, like, week by week watch because basically it was three episodes a week and you could basically binge it as like a mini movie each week, but in three parts. And the pacing to each of them is just so perfect. Like, by the time you end with part six, you are just like, you can't do that to me. You can't leave this. But I love the characters. I think they're all incredibly, even just the first half, I think they're all fascinating. The first two parts are basically all set up like it's a it's a plot that seemingly doesn't go nowhere. I'm not going to say anything beyond that. But beyond like where the characters go, like they're so likable, but they're kind of a-holes. But again, it's that very Guardians kind of pastiche of it all. But in this vein, I love Vex and Vex. I love their backstory. But I think what Percy's whole dynamic is in the first half of the season in accepting himself and accepting the darkness of his past. That is really interesting to me, and it only goes further in the second half when you realize uh, his bond with Vex, when you see the sort of parallels he has with Pyleth in terms of, like, her own, uh, in terms of her, like, self-loathing and things like that. Scanlan is a freaking hoot. Uh, I don't know what to make of the character at certain points. I hate him at some times. Sometimes I really respect him, and then kind of goes there. there. Uh, I love Grog and Pike. I love their relationship so much. I could literally watch a whole web series of just the two of them. They're so great together. I haven't watched Invincible. I'm convinced this is the same studio who did that because gory aesthetic, this is not for kids. Don't let your kids watch this. But again, it has that same kind of no-holds-bar animation style to it. The action sequences are fluid. Everyone has their own combat style. Uh, Keyleth, in particular, has some really great things with like her abilities. It's the story that really matters. It does drag at points, but that's what happens when you adapt a D&D campaign into a 12-episode animated series. And I'm just so impressed at how much I was invested in something I had no idea the context of and just wanted to see where it goes. It really does want to show you that in a battle, all of them are thinking how to enter this fight. Like they're all engaging differently. And maybe that evolves as the show goes on because I, I have only seen the first half. Um, but I like that you you continued my point on Percy because, you know, I don't know if that was on purpose where we were kind of like, oh, Percy, just like this meh kind of like quiet uh, gunslinger in the background, but I hope he develops into something more and he's clearly going to have a dark side of him come out soon. Um, how do you like Gray Griffin as Delilah Briarwood towards like the set, the, towards the half to the end mark? Cause I know, I know she's a big bad. So you got to give me a little bit more here, Brandon. I will simply say I prefer her in the second half. In the first half, she and Silas are very clearly threats. Like in what is it? Episode three, when they make their first like big move, that's interesting. It certainly has like stakes to it, but 
their moments, and particularly her depth of character, only gets bigger. And I should actually mention, if any of you out there are curious about this, there's actually some like fan-made videos that chop together the points of the show and actually like their reveals in the campaign. Like I won't say what it is, but there's a moment at the end of episode five with a tree. There's a comparison of when the cast actually reacted to that in the campaign, and it's heartbreaking. That was like, oh my gosh, is this like, we're entering Game of Thrones level of shock here? Is that what's happening? Because that's what it felt like. My whole point on this is like, if you're not a fan of adult animation, this is not going to be for you. But if you can handle gore, if you can handle language and sex and all that stuff, this is like really no holds barred with it all with really interesting characters. It does feel like a D&D campaign at times, but if you can stick with the characters and get identified with the stakes of it all, and there are stakes in there, I think this is an absolute hoot. Like, I really appreciated this. I can easily see this go on for like several seasons and still have so much more to adapt from. Totally. And the whole first series is currently streaming on Amazon Prime right now. We will be getting to the second half of the series a couple, uh, maybe a week or two down the line. There is a season two confirmed. Thank God. So there is that to check out. We are going to end off our TV segment for today with Pam and Tommy. We've been meaning to get to this for a while. We're supposed to get to the pilot uh, last show. We've watched the entire series as a whole. This, of course, is the Hulu series uh, created by Craig Gillespie, who did Itania. It stars Lily James and uh, Sebastian Stan as Pamela Anderson and Tommy Lee. First, I should say, at the middle of the 1990s, uh, they become a couple rather abruptly. They are moving in together. They have a lot of sexual activities, one of which they tape on a video camera and is stolen by a disgruntled uh, carpenter, played by Seth Rogen in here. He doesn't think he's doing quite well. In fact, actually, Seth Rogen's character, Rand, is kind of the third focus of the series. He's an amateur inventor. He's a theologian. He believes in, like, fair trade and things like that. He gets wrong over by Tommy Lee. He steals the sex tape. And then he and I believe his uncle, played by Nick Offerman, or his boss, one of the two, I'm forgetting which one it actually is, they decide to, well, they can't sell it because they don't have the rights to it from uh, from Pamela or Tommy. So they decide, well, send it over the internet. That's a thing that exists in the mid-90s. And it leads to a lot of lawsuits and complaints and violence and a lot of also subtext about how Pamela specifically is being treated. She is essentially the de facto lead of the series. This is right around when she was leaving Baywatch and going to do barbed wire and trying to start a film career. Spoiler, it didn't quite work out for a myriad of reasons that the sex tape is partially responsible for. It's a very messy story, and Craig Gillespie tells it moderately well. Noah, over to you. What did you think about the idea of this story, about this infamous sex tape and these two prominent celebrities in the mid-90s at the turn of the internet and that kind of story? And what did you think of Gillespie's take? Pamela Anderson, I understood as the actress from Baywatch. And I mean, I do know about the sex tape, but I would wonder, you know, what was she like, like in her real life? And can, can this capture that? And then Tommy, I'll be honest, did not know who Tommy Lee was. When I looked up the name and I saw that he was a member of the Motley crew, then I was like, oh crap, like this is a, this is a rock star romance or like what even happens here? And then understanding it's going to take the approach of what I would be like, um, you know, the, it, it's like, a documentary, but it's a narrative series. And so it's not, it's not taken straight like interviews or stuff like that, but it still has um, historically accurate, what I would hope events throughout. And then we got the images. Of course, Sebastian Stan, you know, his transformation wasn't as crazy. He did get a lot of tattoos. I think those nipple piercings are fake. Um, and of course the uh, recognizable goatee that he's got on the cover of the series. And then, oh my gosh, James as Pamela Anderson, I was like, what? Like the makeup team behind this show, wow, I, I really hope there's some attention that's that's being garnered over there for them. When I turned on this series, I was surprised to find Seth Rogen. I was like, wait. And then you start to understand where that emotion came from being somebody who was taken advantage of by this, you know, millionaire rock star, um, just living his life. And you're being talked 
to as if you're crap. And so you kind of get the initial sense of why Rand went on to release the sex tape. And the internet itself is kind of like this entity that exists in the show that I think is characterized by like mystery and intrigue and kind of intimidation. And that's excellent because coming from, obviously I was born like in the late night, I was born 98. So the internet was always like kind of just with me as I grew up and I wasn't really scared of it, but being an adult and understanding like, what the hell do you mean? Like that this just exists somewhere that I, that I can't go and see like, it must have been so mind boggling. And in those scenes where they discuss the technology advancing is where this show won me over, um, as well as understanding Pamela Anderson and Tommy Lee and their steamy romance. This romance, like they are, they're like a candle, right? Like they extinguish almost as fast as they were like flaring. And I think I'm always intrigued by like celebrities dating and what that world looks like um, on top of the media frenzy on top of, you know, the way that women are looked at in Hollywood and it's what happened to Anderson as an individual being a woman in a sex tape versus what happened to Lee. Like the way that they explored both reactions, I thought were completely realistic, but also just disgusting because it's what happened. Right. Um, like I'll tell you right now, I don't want to see a prosthetic penis talking to Sebastian. Stan. <laughs> yeah. Like, like I thought we had our penis coverage when we talked to Jackass, but we're not done yet. Are we? Oh <laughs> like, no. No, we are not because yeah, in this, in the, in one of like episode three, I was like, what am I? What? I was like, what is this? I'm just eating my salad and you got this dong talking to me on screen. <laughs> um, it was hilarious, but I thought a little bit like we spent too much time there. Um, and that's literally like what I'm thinking of right now. Like when it comes to at least moments in the show where I thought, oh, this is just meant to make some laughs and we're just going to keep going with it. And I was like, like, well, I'm not watching Jackass. Like I'm watching a, a documentary series, a narrative documentary series. Um, tell me, you know, walking away from this, what were those tip of iceberg? Tip of the iceberg is that this shouldn't have been a series. It could have been a movie. I think Gillespie is a director who has gimmicks that I don't quite love. Uh, his The way he frames shots, his needle drops, which are very prevalent in this, uh, especially the, I won't spoil it, but the very last one over the credits, I remember growing to myself and going, okay, sure, Craig. Um, I will say, though, Lily James, Sebastian Stan, fantastic in this. Uh, they are, especially in the early episodes, really reveling in both characters, mostly as caricatures. I'll admit that's a problem I have with the writing is that how the early on they frame Pamela and Tommy as very much the ideas of themselves. I like how later on they delve into, again, the more complexities of them, like Pamela is is subject to a lot of sexism. She's a professional woman. She idolizes Jane Fonda, and those parallels are really prevalent in the show. And then Tommy, who at the beginning, you kind of come up with, at least for me, knowing who Tommy Lee is, like I came up with the assumption, like, oh, he's just an asshole. Like, and he still kind of is. But you, there are moments where he truly loves Pam and truly wants what's best for her. And I appreciate the complexity of both of them and their relationship. I think Gillespie and team really frame Rand as not the moral center, but like the kind of, oh, isn't that sad how he, you know, had an abusive relationship? Yes, Tommy Lee is an a-hole in this and he deserves his repercussions. But the way they kind of frame Rand as like the prime arbiter of this, like, no, 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 you stole private property, released it online for a quick gag, made money off of it, and basically ruined a promising actress's life. Like, let's not pull punches with that. Uh, and I think it continues on with that in the second half where I felt it's trying so hard to make everyone likable that not everyone does. And by the end of it, you're kind of like, and spoiler, where Pan is at the end of the series, where it's just like, let me just end this. Like, just whatever it takes to end this nonsense of the media frenzy and the online stuff, like, just get me out of this. 
Taylor Schilling coming in, uh, who know who some of you know her as Piper Chapman from Orange is the New Black, as Erica, an adult an adult film actress, um, greatly communicates the difference between what it's like for Rand to have you know stolen this footage and released it online. And he looks at it as, as if it's just something comparable to porn where he's like, well, this character, Erica, you know, you're a porn actress and people see you have sex all the time. And he's even involved in one of those films throughout their relationship. But the, the anger that she has, like the response that she has to him making that comparison, I felt so like it was just so validated because what it means, especially for the performer too, one of them being a performer and the other one just being somebody who was recorded. I think your point is great when you, when you talk about how in the early episodes, Pam and Tommy really are just the ideas of Pam and Tommy. And we kind of don't even, their screen time in the beginning is like, it's just Seth Rogen show. Like it's not really a Pam and Tommy show. The pilot is literally a Seth Rogen indie movie about stealing from a rich couple. That's what it is. Yeah. That's to its fault. Like it made me go like, oh, I thought this was going to be a series like about Pam and Tommy, but then we get a couple episodes later, we get the lead up to the sex tape and we get the early days of the romance, um, you know, all the trips and just all the lavish spendings that they do together. And as much as I was enjoying that, I was forgetting that the series is about the sex tape scandal. So then it had me going, I can't wait to get back to Seth Rogen because at least then the story is going to be moving. And when I was exploring their past relationship, it, it just felt like I spent too long there. I think Pamela's character is much more focused and much more like given the room to breathe, especially in those moments where all she is on Baywatch, she's there for the action sequences and she has a couple lines here and there. But when she's presented the opportunity to showcase her acting, her monologue is stripped and that's devastating to her. And I think that that was so, so powerful to see in a series like this where people probably, maybe they have just a single perspective on Pam, who Pamela Anderson was. And I was thankful that this more range to who that character was. You can really see her shining through, you know, the makeup and the wig and everything. And that humanity is coming through. There's a great scene with her and Tommy in a movie theater when she's watching the premiere of Barbed Wire and people are, you know, making fun of her and all this stuff. And you can really see like that emotion just draining out of her face. And I think she is so good at those angles of it. And it's funny that we mentioned the idea of, you know, Pam and a Pam, a Pamela Anderson as an icon of the media and like how they present her. We haven't talked as much about Tommy, but I think there's something to be said. And I thought I was thinking about this as I was watching the series that the show, even if it leans away from the media exposure of it all, I like the idea of, oh, they're so vastly different. And yet they're kind of the same because they're both people of begotten times. Like Pamela Anderson is very much trying to be framed as like, oh, the 1940s Marilyn Monroe uh, spiritual successor. And Tommy Lee is kind of like, you know, the reigning goth king of rock. But in actuality, they're both kind of be, being pushed away. Like Anderson is not giving the opportunities that she's supposed to be. Tommy Lee has a lot of I think really impactful moments where we see like the impact of grunge and that kind of movement in taking out a lot of the Guayamax that he has been so framed as. Even if I'm not necessarily a fan of what Gillespie does in terms of narrative pacing or like what he chooses to focus on, I'm glad that that is made a parallel between the two characters. At the end of the day, though, it is a series that frames Pamela Anderson in the midst of the media scandals. And I think that's interesting, but like for an eight episode hour long series on Hulu with ads, it takes up a lot of time. I think you could have made this easily like an hour and 45 minute movie and just gotten it over with. Yes. This series was long. Like it yeah. felt longer than the Batman. <laughs> like, Definitely. like we talked about dope sick. And I think that's a series that warrants the length of it because of all the stories and the grand scale of this. This is not that. There are beats to get to, and if it's going to take two episodes to get there, I don't have 80 minutes to spare just to wait for the next drop. 
right, uh, let's move on to ratings then. Uh, for me, this is a very solid five and a half. I know that sounds a bit cruel, but like there are things about it that really bug me in terms of framing, in terms of narrative writing, in terms of heft to it. That being said, I do like what Lily James and Sebastian Stan are doing here. This is These are roles that I hope come award season they'll be recognized for, if not just remembered for. Like I think those are dynamic roles that they had a great time with. The actual setting of it is fascinating. For me, it's too long. It focuses on too few things that are important, and I wanted more from it. For me, this series is going to be a 6 out of 10. This is definitely one of those stories where you can get the feelings of passion behind Pam and Tommy's love, but also like understand why they didn't ultimately work. Uh, there was a credit at the very end that says they both still regard each other as like the love of each other's life. Uh, I think performance is really the winner for me. And that's why I'm kind of, I'm sticking with it. And nothing's greater than like seeing the, seeing all the confusion around the internet again. Like it's, it's, it is scary and it is cool just to be confused about it with them in those scenes. Um, I could use less talking dongs. That's all six. <sighs> Yes, once again, voiced by Jason Manzukis in one episode that you will never forget. Uh, the whole series, Pam and Tommy, is currently streaming on Hulu if you are so inclined. And that's going to wrap up our TV section for today. If you're ready, I'm ready to dabble um, once again back into our directorial debut. We are talking Batman today. It's not just Pattinson in this house. We are talking Affleck as well. So we're talking Ben Affleck's directorial debut. All right. He doesn't have the cape and the, and the scowl this time around, but he's actually behind camera and he does a pretty fine job at it. So why don't we talk gone baby gone for our next directorial debut? Brandon. If we can't get to all the Batman today, we can at least get to two of them. Uh, Ben Affleck's Gone Baby Gone. This is, of course, based on the Dennis Lahane novel. I apologize for pronouncing his name wrong. I, I've never heard it said. Uh, it's based on the 1998 novel of the same name. This is from 2007. Ben Affleck at the time was coming off of a, a very weird place in his career, and he decides, oh, you know, I want to try more serious turns. He does um, the one where he plays Superman. I'll bring up the name in a second. That brought him some acclaim. But then naturally, the acclaim, uh, the acclaim continued when he started to direct in this movie as well. Of course, again, based on the novel of the same name, we follow Casey Affleck. Uh, he directs his brother in this alongside Michelle Monaghan as Patrick and Angie, uh, two private eyes who are also romantically involved, uh, living in, I believe it's the north side of Boston. Uh, they kind of, it's they're kind of like a, uh, equalizer type deal where they just go out in the community. They help people for fine rates. They have a very strong moral code. Angie more so than Patrick, but they kind of balance each other out. One day, there is a giant media frenzy in the town over a missing girl called Amanda. Um, her mother is played by Amy Ryan. She's kind of down on her luck. She's considered kind of a bottom feeder to a lot of people. She does drugs. She's kind of down on her luck. The place they live is not great. And it becomes this whole thing of she and her family. Uh, the aunt and the aunt and uncle of the group are played by Titus Welliver and Amy Madigan. They bring on uh, Casey. Aff <laughs> they bring on Casey Affleck and Michelle Monaghan's character. To find Amanda, um, Casey Affleck and Michelle Monaghan eventually team up with two other Boston detectives, uh, played by Ed Harris and John Ashton, as well as a reluctant relationship with the police captain, uh, pa Captain Doyle, played by Morgan Freeman. Captain Doyle has lost a daughter of his own, so he is incredibly determined on the case as well. And the whole thing becomes this wild manhunt slash goose chase for this little girl. Uh, we get a lot of fun cameos in the way. We get a lot of exploration of Boston subcultures and like that. And the movie essentially contends with the question of like, what is her mother's stance in this? What is the police's department's stance in this? And can Patrick and Angie's relationship survive this, you know, this cold, cold world they both so inhabited? Noah, over to you. What has been your experience with Ben Affleck as a director? Because in the last number of years, he's kind of reestablished himself as a critically acclaimed director between the between Argo and the town and what was going to be Batman in this case. 
Gone Baby Gone was the start of that. What did you think of this? Ben Affleck is an incredible director, honestly. Once we get into the details around Gone Baby Gone, you know, I'm sure I'll make a case there. But my first experience with him, I've seen The Town and I, um, sadly, I missed Argo and I just never revisited it. But I heard that that's, I heard that that's also incredible. So you'll have to let me know if you've seen that and like kind of your reactions to it. Um, but approaching this film as a debut, it is so powerful. Um, not only because I think the, the subject material, which based on like a detective novel, like, I think the story kind of, um, he has a, he has a writing credit as well. So it's not all, you know, just from, from the story. Um, he clearly penned some of the screenplay, but I think he's got kind of leverage here because a, his brother is, is an amazing actor. If anybody's seen Manchester by the sea, like powerful, powerful performance from Casey Affleck and, um, Ed Harris, you got, uh, Morgan Freeman, like, um, there's so many great actors in this that it's hard. It's really hard to make a bad movie with them. Right. Um, but coming to this, this was the movie that I remember flashes and like small scenes from, uh, because, because it was a film that my mom had really adored. So I, I have memories of it being on in the living room and like it being emotional me being like, Ooh, I don't know if this emotional movie is for me. Uh, but then when we talked about doing this for a DD, I was like, Oh, like sign me up. Like I'm, I'm ready to watch it finally. And oh boy, like this is a, this is a moving detective story, seeds of John Benet Ramsey, like that whole case and being interested in true crime, listening to podcasts. Like I know a detail surrounding that case. So I was happy that it wasn't being coy about like being close to that because in the very first chapter of this story, somebody immediately mentions like, Hey, you know how the detect, you know how the families for John Benet Ramsey hired their own detectives. That's what we want to do. We want to hire you to find my niece. And I like that they included that. So coming off of this, I'm kind of, you know, all ears. Like I was, I was attentive throughout the story. I think it does hit a, it does hit a wall in the middle, which I, I want to explore with you and see how you felt around it. But based on the performances, uh, Ben Affleck's direction, this is a solid film and an excellent debut. I will actually say, first of all, Hollywood land was the movie I'm thinking of where he plays George Reeves and he's fantastic in that. Uh, number two, this actually ties together a little bit in a different way to our show because yes, it's the Batman connection, but also, uh, the pedophile, uh, Corwin in this movie is played by Matthew Maher, who is from Our Flag Means Death. I, in a I completely really different role in Our Flag Means Death. <laughs> completely. Affleck is a complicated human being. Uh, he has had his run-ins with the press in the past. He has said some, let's say, questionable things. Uh, that's for another time. But you know what? As a director goes, yeah, for me, he's three for four. I think The Town is immaculately done. I do think Argo is still one of the best movies of 2012. Live by Night kind of wasn't for me, but like it wasn't the trash heap that I think a lot of people called it as. And Gone Baby Gone is an incredibly strong start. I liked a lot of this movie, particularly in Affleck's direction. You can tell that, obviously, that he loves Boston, but he loves the camaraderie aspect of it. He loves the idea of a community where everyone knows everybody and what storytelling possibilities can come out of that. You know, you see the idea of Patrick and Angie just knowing, yes, the family and yes, like ordinary bystanders, but they know, you know, uh, the gang leaders. They know, you know, kind of the crime circles. They know people in the police department. Like, And that whole web of intersections provides for a really fascinating dichotomy for the movie. Uh, visually, it's really interesting. It's shot by, um, uh, John Toll. Just really gets a lot of, like, great lighting out of Boston, things like that. The performances we're going to dive into, I think there's a lot of really great stuff here. Again, Affleck and Monaghan's chemistry is one of them. Amy Ryan, who was nominated for an Academy Award that year, is terrific in this. Um, and we should also mention, uh, Affleck was nominated for the uh, National Board of Review for Director Awards for this. 
which I think goes to say, at the time, again, he was not the most popular figure. So to come off of the back end of directing career with something like this that is so streamlined, interesting, and kind of revels in some really dark moral questions is really impressive, even for the nitpicks that I have with it. You just mentioned Amy Ryan. We've talked Only Murders in the Building earlier on the pod, and I was wondering why I recognized her. So I had to look up the acting credits just real quickly. And oh my gosh, what a performance she delivers. Like I was convinced that she was the, the kind of careless mother that she's portrayed as in the film. And, um, when we talk about what this film explores, like I would say like morally, um, after, Casey Affleck, I can't just call them Affleck because they're brothers. Right, this is where it gets difficult. Right, so Patrick Kenzie um, is quite an interesting character to follow, like perfect for audiences because he is somebody who is not as decided as, I guess, coded in his ways of, of which way he leans, whereas I feel his partner, both in the professional and romantic sense, um, Angie is, which is Michelle uh, Monaghan, um, I think that she is more so like, she's set in her ways and that's why that's why their their partnership works out is because she is more of the um you know the tree that's unmoving and he is more of so like the branches that that weave back and forth um and that's that's abundantly clear in the ending and how and how they you know how they come to terms with the decision that's made around the child that goes missing um something else i wanted to mention here was okay so that wall so to me um, of course, we're talking spoilers. You know, this isn't a new release, so we can explore um, all the material. So in the middle, this is, of course, a story about um, a young girl who's gone missing. In the middle, it's revealed or it's, I guess, alluded to that she is killed. And so then the detectives are kind of at a standstill for what clues can lead them to like another um, lead and like where we're going from there. Um, they think that they've they think that they've got like the person behind it, but there's still questions being asked. So that's what, for me, that's when I felt like I was just waiting for the next thing to, for the next pin to drop. And so um, I'm curious, did you feel that in experience while watching it? Like, did you, cause in the beginning um, I watched a couple video essays and I learned that the people that they include for like um, on air interviews um, were actually members of of that Boston area. And so I thought that was so interesting that they would include, you know, uh, actual community members and not just pull from whatever kind of actors that they had available. I want to ask you about if as an audience member, like how you felt um, just being drawn to the story and if it kept you the whole time, because um, it's not it's not a bad length. It's two hours long, but it's a detective story and it, and it moves. I will fully admit I turned into a bit of a cynic towards the middle because you know, you mentioned there's the thing of, okay, we, we think we know what happens to Amanda. And then there's another child who we have to deal with for the story. And I thought, okay, maybe this is going to be the idea of like, you know, cyclical violence that you can't stop. Like maybe there's that thing of, cause there's that conversation between uh, Casey Affleck and Ed Harris about like, you know, uh, I'm forgetting what exactly the dialogue is, but there's that whole thing of like, you can't always stop bad people from doing bad things and that kind of whole deal. And I thought, oh, maybe this is going to be, like, the kind of haunting thing where, like, he he couldn't save Amanda, but he can save, like, the younger kid, and that's going to be the crux of the story. And then we bring back the Amanda element later, and when we do, I think, for me, it kind of retro... It, it retroactively fixes a lot of the problems I had with the middle of, like, it, it still feels a little bit off-kilter, but, like, once you actually see how that plays out from the point of view of other characters, I'm trying to be coy about it, but I think it really worked in re-grabbing me back into the story that for a while was just kind of doing its own thing. And for like this true crime genre, uh, th- what one thing comes to mind, and that's the 
the journalist perspective of um, if anyone's seen sharp objects. And so um, what happens, um, one thing that I, that I was connecting from there was that this is a, um, it's not necessarily a small town, but definitely we have a tight knit community here that gives that small town feel, but everybody has a secret. And um, that I think what was so interesting in the beginning is because having known like kind of what's going to happen throughout the story, like I, I did, I did know like, how it would end. Um, I was just watching it and trying to see through these performances and be like, how would they have suspected like that the uncle was in on it or like, um, that the like lead, um, investigator, uh, Morgan Freeman was also so tied to it. I want to quickly go back to Amy Ryan's character for a second because I think she, first of all, she's fantastic in it. And you're right. Like only murders is like only the surface if you've only seen that. Uh, she's truly. I'm forgetting who she lost the Academy Award to. I can put that up in a minute. Uh, as far as like Helene as a character goes, I think she represents this really dark idea of motherhood. This idea that of unconditional love is one thing, but actually presenting it as tangible, you know, love and support and like physical needs is another thing. And I, I, I really do want to get into the ending because I think it's one of maybe the best endings I've seen in recent years. But I think. Leading up to that, we see the different facets of Helene as a character. We get that, you know, really emotional scene with Casey Affleck promising to find the daughter. And at at a certain point, you have to wonder, like, how much of that does she believe versus how much of that is he buying into? Because, again, Patrick, you mentioned Patrick is like, you know, kind of having the branches that we I kind of thought a bit of the opposite. I thought he was much more of the idea of, you know, the law is the law and like we have to follow that to the best of our ability. But at the same time, when the ending comes back, I think the reason it's so powerful is because he does have like that core belief shaken. He he doesn't have that freedom. Whereas Angie is very much of the idea of, yes, she's more like strict, you know, to a moral degree. But I think in terms of like where the end can go, I think she's much more free flowing with it. So I'm interested that we uh, became about that conclusion. But I think, again, there's that the, that degree of Helene that we don't see often in fiction. And I think Amy Ryan is able to draw out all of the dimensions to it really really specifically. And I think that's really difficult to do. Uh, more of a fun note here. I wanted to mention that um, Titus Welliver, who yeah. plays the uncle in the story, has a killer mustache. I was glued, right? I was glued to his face when he was on screen. I was just like, dude, okay. I didn't know y'all casted a squirrel to like be attached to this man's face because it is so like, it is the mustache that I think all mustache <laughs> aspirers will um amount to and then looking at his credits it looks like Affleck's worked with him in the past too having starred in the town and in Argo. Right, yeah so um clearly like they have a good relationship there I would be interested to see his performance in the other films as well as he had like more of like a minor role in this film just just back to the leads yeah I I, I understand your points there Brandon and let's talk about the ending do you feel that it's not really like how we feel about it. It's it's what happens. So in the end, it's revealed that Amanda has actually been like harbored this whole time uh, by Morgan Freeman's character. And the dilemma that's explored here is, do you keep, do you keep a child? Do you strip a child away from an, a mother that is, that is producing like an abusive environment, raise them yourselves and like bring them to something better or do you leave them there and just kind of let them flounder and see how they develop? Like, don't interrupt a mother's, like, don't, in, don't interrupt a mothering. And if you have to, you know, do it uh, the cordial way or something, you know, call Child Protective Services or, or, or things of that nature. But instead, they're more, 
they're more, you know, uh, malicious here and they come up with this entire scandal. They get a PI involved. Like they take all these extra steps when in fact they, they believe that they're doing something right. So how do you, how did you think that that was um, executed? How well do you think that was executed on screen, Brandon? I think it's one of the best things I've seen in recent years, uh, both between the actual final conversation between um, Patrick and Captain Doyle, and then the actual final scene, which I think really hit me like a truck. I think Affleck's directing, I think you could have extended that scene a bit more. Like, I think there's so much to be fun. They get across the major points. They get across, you know, obviously the major ideas of it. It does bring to mind that Morgan Freeman, and I hate saying this because he's the one person of color really in the movie, he's a bit miscast in this. Like, Michael K. Williams is also in this, and he feels way more natural to Boston than Morgan Freeman's, like, regal demeanor does. But at the same time, I think that scene is why you cast Morgan Freeman, because you need that sense of, like, traumatic humanity to really bring home the idea of, no, Amanda needs a home, she needs a support system, she needs good things behind her, and I may not be the one to get, but her mother is not that. And then at the same time, you have Patrick, who is going the complete opposite direction. And again, going to my point earlier, I think he is desperately like even uh, even Captain Doyle has that line of just like, I think deep down, you know, I'm right. And like we as an audience see that because we're, we're privy to calling Patrick a good character to this point up until the very, very end when you realize, no, 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 he bought into that and he has had this shattered. Like the idea that yeah, at the very end, like, oh, you know, Pauline doesn't even know what like the doll is called and just like leaves her at home like. If there is a more powerful scene from a Ben Affleck directed movie, I have yet to see it. Like, I love what he does with both endings. I will mention as well that Jack Doyle's character, we kind of like mentioned in the beginning, but it's worth reiterating that he is a father who has lost a child already. Um, He's raised a, um, or he had raised a teen who um, was killed. And so you feel that from, from Freeman's um, portrayal of this character, who's just, who really feels justified in his actions. And he, and you're right. Yeah. He tells um, Patrick um, Kenzie, he tells him, you know, maybe right now you don't think that I'm doing the right thing, but when you get to my age, like when you have this perspective, you'll, you'll look back and you'll know why I did this. Um, and it's so weird because I'm in, I'm 23 and I'm looking at it and I'm like, Ooh, if I get there and I make this decision, I was like, I see it. I see, I see the justification there. It's just so it's horrible, right? Like it, it, it's such a great film because it, it explores that without making you like turned off to the subject. Like it's, it, it pulls you in. Um, we both mentioned that bump that it hits in the middle, but if you carry yourself through it um, and reach the ending, it's, it is a very powerful ending. Totally. And I think it even makes the middle of the movie better because like, even though it, you know, drags and like does a basically completely different thing. Yes, the tie-in is there narratively, but I think emotionally there's also something there. Like, what if that other kid had had the same situation? Like, would you handle this on a case? It's an idea of the law handling things as the law or case-by-case emotion, human, uh, human emotionality. And I wasn't expecting that kind of depth from this. And the fact that we get it in such a really interesting degree at multiple points that retroactively makes the movie better, I think is an achievement among itself. That being said, I think we should get on to ratings. We've had this episode for way too long as it is. I'm going to start off. This is a very solid eight and a half for me. Again, the middle drags a little bit. There's a couple narrative Nick things. That, the stuff with the cheese, the drug dealer, I think is a bit too on the nose kind of deal. But at the same time, like the warmth and love that Affleck has for this kind of story, I think is for his debut, I think really noteworthy. Again, whatever you have to say about the guy's, you know, pessimography about his, you know, uh, real life antics, fair enough. But like as a director, I think this is a great start. I think 
Affleck and Monaghan have impeccable chemistry here. The whole cast, even in its more mismatched moments, seems to have this weird electric chemistry to it. And again, just the narrative and ideas behind it of what does home and family mean? What does it entail? What do you deserve from it? I think there's so much here to explore. And I think if you haven't checked it out, I think it's absolutely worth a watch. My rating is going to be seven and a half. I think that... um Ben Affleck as a director coming into this debut, he has a stellar cast to work with and they definitely deliver performances. We didn't touch on Ed Harris too heavily, but um, no, he's excellent yeah. in this as well. Um, I just think uh, another thing worth mentioning that's part of my rating is the setting. Like this is a detective story that really explores the area um, so well. Like when you, when you make me interested in a setting and all it is, is like houses and bars, that's how, you know, like this direction is really great. Um, uh, this isn't like the shoot 'em up kind of movie either. That's, he's not John Wick. He's not that kind of investigator. It's more so how can we connect these clues? Can you see beyond the facade that they have in the first act? And when it's all revealed in the end, it, it's executed very well. So seven and a half for me. I will go check out Argo because I people always talk about it and I have to check it out. As you totally should. It's really great. Um, Gone Baby Gone is currently streaming on HBO Max and available on VOD. If you want to check it out, it is on there for your convenience. That'll do it for this, frankly, elongated episode of Plot Devices. I'm so sorry, Future Me, for having edited this. Thank you so much for tuning in. Listen, while we've got you here, do us a quick favor. Go follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and our RSS feed at Plot Devices. That's Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and our RSS feed at Plot Devices. And Twitter and Instagram as well. We'll have updates on whenever episodes are coming out and other fun things uh, over at Plot Devices Pod on Twitter and Instagram. I want to thank my co-host for today, Noah Guzman. Uh, Noah, how are you doing today? What do you got going on in your life? And where can people find you online? Today is a beautiful day. Uh, for me, I am going to be watching Ty West's new movie. Uh, it features Jenna Ortega, Mia Goth, and uh, Brittany Snow, and Kid Cudi. You got Scott Muscutty in there. Um, it is titled X. And honestly, I don't know a lot of details around it other than like what they've been willing to share in um, interviews and in trailers. So I'll be checking that out next week. And I can't wait to talk about it on the pod. You know me, I'm the horror guy. If you want to follow me, you can follow me on Twitter at Noah's Plotting. And... Of course, on the Odyssey Online with Arizona State University, you can uh, read my latest review. The one that I have up right now is for uh, Cyrano. I do want to get one out for The Curse. That is a horror I checked out a couple weeks back, and um, I will be watching X very soon. Yes, and go check out our episode last week for Noah's thoughts on The Curse. I, I actually was really surprised by what he had to say. Go check me out if you're interested. Uh, I am also on AOC Odyssey. My reviews for The Batman and my 10th anniversary review of Red Tails from Lucasfilm are both up right now. Uh, I'm also planning on doing something for Oscars. I'm not sure what. I'll have to talk to Noah see if he's doing anything for that, but keep your eye on out for that. Again, AOC Odyssey at my name as well. Uh, you can also follow my band at Killbox Music, at Cablebox Music on uh, Instagram and Twitter. We just played at the Rebel Lounge. Thank you guys so much for coming out the other day. It was a fantastic show. We have more shows in the works, more music in the works. Just stay tuned for that. Follow us on there and see what you think. And of course, you can follow me on social media, Twitter, Instagram, at TheMovieKing45, Twitter and Instagram, at TheMovieKing45. That'll do it for today's episode of Plot Devices. Thank you all so much for tuning in once again. Uh, oh, and by the way, uh, our spoiler review for The Batman, we completely forgot to mention, uh, we did a full spoiler breakdown of The Batman with Danielle Balkenkamp and Sky Merida from uh, No Camps Required. Check that out. It should be up by the time you're hearing this. If not, it'll be up in a couple days from now. So just uh, keep your eyes for that and again, follow us on all the platforms. For this episode of Plot Devices, my name is Brandon King. This has been Noah Guzman. I'll catch you guys next time. <laughs>